Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 1. That is page 798 on, uh, in the Bible in the pew backs in front of you. So again, that's Mark chapter 13, starting at verse 1, and page 798. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And now we're actually going to skip all the way to verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Susie. Thanks, Dustin and Carly. That was super cool to hear about the work you guys are doing. And I'm excited to be diving into a very interesting portion of Scripture this morning. Uh, A couple times um, back in high school, two times actually, um, our soccer team made it to the finals in our uh, small Christian school league. And uh, each time we made it all the way through regulation, um, you know, one of those dramatic nail-biting experiences, and you know, you're kind of gutting it out all the way through regulation time. You get into overtime. I don't know if they still do this, but at that point it was sudden death. So first team to score a goal wins. And so we went through two sudden death periods, and you know, you were just at that point utterly exhausted. It's all heart, maybe a little conditioning, but you know, you're out there for, you know, it's like 90 minutes, gutting it out. Man, and we went to the second period of sudden death um, and then made it all the way to uh, penalty shots. Two years in a row, actually. <laughs> Two years, I'll leave you uh, in suspense about how it all, the, the final result. Uh, but I think if you've been in athletics before, if you've been in sports, you know that as the game gets more intense, you get further along, the urgency 
increases, right? As you get to that fourth quarter, the third period, whatever it is, you know, the intensity continues to ratchet up, right? You, you get more excited. Then once it goes into overtime, you're just tapping into a different level of energy and adrenaline that you didn't even know you had. You know, you're digging deep to find that those final bits of energy that are going to get you through. Or if you're a runner, right, you know, you see that finish line and there's that final burst of energy as you see the goal in sight. You know, you're making a run uh, for it. And I think that's what's happening here in this, sir, in this text this morning. Uh, there's something about this urgency that brings the best out of us. And I think Jesus wants to give his disciples a vision, a vision for the end, a vision for the end goal of their race, if you will, of the great work that they are engaged in. And so uh, my big idea for this morning is that we're supposed to live with the end in mind. It's supposed to inspire us. It's supposed to energize us. It's supposed to mobilize us for kingdom work especially with, I think sometimes when we talk about the end times or the end, we think, oh yeah, that's just some bizarre, you know, weird movies, the Left Behind series or some really, you know, crazy end times eschatology charts. But I think what's really happening in these texts is Jesus is trying to galvanize his disciples, motivate them for the work he has called them uh, to do. Let me, let me give you just a little context here. Uh, if you are just kind of jumping into our series and wonder, what have I just gotten myself into uh, this morning? Uh, we're in the middle of Jesus' Passion Week, and it has been filled with tension, uh, but so far, fairly anticlimactic. Right on day one, Jesus entered the temple, uh, entered Jerusalem triumphantly to the welcome of the crowds, went in, looked around, and then went back to Bethany. Everyone's wondering, what is, what is Jesus going to do? He's just come into town triumphantly, victoriously as the king, but then he just leaves town. And then in the preceding days, he comes to the temple every day. He's been interacting with the chief priests, with the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees. It's just been this long train of interactions, debates, discussions that are going on. And, uh, as we're trying to sort out where does Jesus land in all this, right? The different religious leaders are like, is he a Pharisee? Is he a Sadducee? Is he a Zealot? Is he an Essene? Where does Jesus fit in the landscape of the first century? But Jesus has a way more ambitious kingdom vision, right? He's got something way bigger going on than what is happening here amongst his contemporaries. Jesus will not be fit into the different boxes that the religious leaders want to put him in. And so by the time we get to Mark 12, uh, 35 or 34, we read these, uh, these interesting words. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions, right? Jesus has had this long string of run-ins with the religious leaders, uh, not being able to get them on their team. You know, they give up, essentially. They're like, all right, we, we were run out of questions to stump this guy. Uh, to trick him. So everybody's wondering, what is Jesus' next move, right? What is he going to do, right? He's just stumped all the religious leaders. You know, he's there. He's at the temple. It's Passover. Tens of thousands of people are gathered in Jerusalem. What's Jesus' next move, right? That's the question we're all wondering at this point. That's the question the crowds are wondering. That's the question the disciples are wondering. What is Jesus going to do? And as they're leaving the temple, one of the disciples comment on the beautiful buildings Herod is building. I think I have a 
picture of these uh, spectacular buildings. This is kind of a picture from uh, the Mount of Olives, just of this massive temple complex. And to really appreciate this, you've got to understand that this temple complex could fit 12 football fields within it. It was 36 acres, one of the most massive temple projects in the ancient world. Herod had spent, spared no expense in putting this massive complex together. There's beautiful, like classical architecture, Corinthian columns. The thing was plated in gold. Uh, Josephus, the historian, said, like if people approached the temple, there were so many gold sheets on it. If the sun was coming up in the morning, it would like blind you. It was just a dazzling, beautiful building. It'd been, he'd been building it for decades. It had been in the works. And the disciples are looking at this building and going, this is spectacular. It's incredible. But Jesus says, interestingly enough, that these buildings are totally irrelevant to the new thing he's doing. In fact, they, they aren't even going to be around to be part of the end. Uh, later, once they start on their way back to Bethany for the night, four of the disciples asked Jesus, when all this is going to happen? When is this temple going to be destroyed? So Jesus takes a quiet moment on the Mount of Olives, overlooking the temple, uh, similar as we're doing right now, on this slide, looking at the temple, and he's going to unpack his much broader kingdom vision to his disciples. So we get to listen in on this conversation, which makes so much sense of everything that happens next in the narratives. The disciples and many of Jesus' contemporaries think the coming of the Messiah and the end times are imminent. This is it, right? It's one of the Jewish high holidays. Tens of thousands of people are in Jerusalem. It's the perfect time for Jesus to finally reveal himself and his power and his glory. But instead, Jesus offers a very different vision of the end, which is rooted in their own time and space, but stretches to the ends of the earth and the end of time and Jesus' return. And that's what makes this text so confusing. Is Jesus talking about events happening in his own time or events stretching into the far distant future or both, right? If you are reading along, and I hope you'll read along and be digging into this in your own scripture, you're going to notice how quickly this becomes confusing. So I'm going to try to get a few clear handholds for you this morning that I hope will help you understand this text and make sense of at least the clear things, and then we'll leave some of the confusing things off to the side, and I can go grab a beer, and we can go talk or grab some coffee, and we can have a conversation about the end times. Uh, that'd be really, that'd be wonderful and a lot of fun. Three things we're going to look at this morning, three signs of the end. Jesus' disciples are looking for signs of the end. Sign number one, the gospel proclaimed to all nations. That we see clearly in verse 10, the first thing that has to happen. Second, we see the great tribulation. We're going to see it in verse 14 through 23. There's going to be this incredible great tribulation, worst thing that's happened in the world from creation till now. And then finally, Jesus' return in glory, verse 24 through 24-7. And my aim for this morning's sermon is not to speculate about Jesus' return, the end times, but that we would have a fresh urgency for the advance of Jesus' kingdom as we get closer to the end of that point, as we are further along in the game, as we are maybe, we could speculate in the fourth quarter of this game, this mission that Jesus has of getting the gospel to the nations, that we would have a fresh urgency in that beautiful work. So let's pray, and we will dive in this morning. Father, living here in uh, West Michigan, uh, comfortably uh, situated 2,000 years after uh, you spoke these words, uh, it's pretty easy for us to be apathetic about this kingdom 
vision, to be lulled into complacency, to lose focus, right, as this work has continued over the last 2,000 years to continue to circle the globe. And so would you wake us up this morning? Would you see the importance of the work you're doing? Would you give us a fresh urgency for the completion of your mission? Would you inspire us? Would you empower us and mobilize us to be about the work you are doing in the world? And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, all right, strap on your seatbelts. We've got a massive chapter uh, to cover. Uh, buckle in. We are, it's going to be a fun ride, I think, going through this text this morning. So sign number one, right? The gospel proclaimed in all nations. And so we're going to be looking there. But first, before we get to verse 10, um, we need to look at a couple of things because Jesus starts with things that are not signs of the end. And so if you're reading along, which I hope you are in verse 13, you're going to need your Bible because this is complicated. Uh, you're going to want to read along with me. Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places. There'll be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And so we get these warnings here from Jesus, right? Don't be deceived by false messiahs. Don't be anxious about wars and rumors of wars. Don't be afraid of earthquakes or famines. Don't be surprised by persecution. These are all, these are not the end, right? This is just living in a fallen world, right? They're tragic, they're terrible parts of living this fallen world, but they're not the end of the world, okay? Wars happen, wars have been happening for the last 2,000 years, earthquakes have been happening, you know, famines have been happening, all of these tragic things in a broken and fallen world, but they're not the end of the world. In fact, verse 9 and 11 through 13 are some ways a synopsis of the storyline of the book of Acts, the gospel advancing through much persecution, through much adversity. If you read Acts all the way through, Acts chapter 1 through 28, you'll see these very things, persecution. Uh, you'll see the gospel spreading from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the world. Uh, that is what is happening. And so while, so while wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famine, persecution can cause anxiety in us. They can cause speculation about the end. Jesus tells us they're just the normal stuff of living in this broken world. Jesus is setting his disciples' expectations. He says that they will have to learn how to not only live, but thrive in a broken and fallen world. They'll have to learn to be resilient in the midst of persecution and suffering, right? This is, this is, this is life in a fallen world. Get ready for it. So if none of these things are the true signs of the end, what is? Jesus offers his kingdom vision in verse 10. And this is a key text here. I think it's clear. It's very helpful. It's an important handhold in what is otherwise a very confusing text. And the gospel must first, and that word first is important, must first be proclaimed to all nations. Right? And this first sign is a pretty ambitious one. Right? Imagine right, these four disciples sitting with Jesus, on the Mount of Olives, outside Jerusalem, hoping that Jesus is finally about to bring his kingdom in power 
in glory, right? They've spent the last three years spreading the good news of the kingdom all over uh, Israel in the north and in the south, and now they finally come to Jerusalem. It's the Passover. All of Israel is gathered to celebrate this great and high and holy feast, and here they are. This is their moment, right, where Jesus is finally going to display his power and his glory, and then Jesus drops this uh, kind of jaw-dropping statement on them, like, hey, surprise, guys, we're going global. <laughs> you thought we were just taking this message to, like, Israel, just to, just to the Jews, but actually, this message of the kingdom has got to go to every single nation on earth. Just imagine you are four people, part of a group of 12 disciples, uh, who have the task just landed upon them to bring the gospel to the nations, right? Everyone was expecting Jesus to kick out the Romans, establish his kingdom, bring the end. But Jesus has his sights set on a much bigger prize. And I think this is sometimes difficult for us to remember because we know the rest of the story. You know, Dustin has already mentioned, right? Many of us know the Great Commission by heart. We know, right, that the gospel has got to be preached to all nations. This is why we send people out. But for these disciples, this would have been absolutely mind-blowing, overwhelming, uh, Thing that Jesus had just thrown their uh, way. You know, we know uh, Matthew 28, take the gospel of all nations. We know these texts, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. We've read Acts 1.8, right? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But this was all brand new to the disciples, right? This global mission was something absolutely new. And this is Jesus' plan A before the crucifixion, right? We have to recognize this was not like Jesus had to change plans. From the beginning, this was Jesus' global mission. I love how the, uh, the great uh, Baptist preacher uh, Charles Spurgeon says it. He says, the Christian church was designed from the first to be aggressive. It wasn't intended to remain stationary at any period but to advance outward until its boundaries became commensurate with those of the world. And of course, today with 2 billion Christians, we can go, of course, that's what needs to happen. But for a handful of ragtag disciples sitting in Jerusalem in the first century, wondering, Jesus, how are we going to take this gospel to the nations? Just imagine how mind-blowing this would have been. Christianity has its roots in Palestine, but it's always been broader, right? The movement has always been outward. Even in the Old Testament, there are so many hints that the gospel is going to go to the nations and kind of contrasts this to other religions, right? Most Buddhists today still live in Southeast Asia, right? Most Hindus still live in India. Most Muslims are in Northern Africa or the Middle East or in Indonesia. Uh, most atheists live in, conveniently, in Europe or North America, right? That's just kind of how it works. But Christianity is a global religion. It's rooted historically in a specific people group, but it has, from the beginning, had this vast global ambition, right? It's the most, as Tim Keller said, the most inclusive, exclusive religion, right? Anybody can be a part of it. It's never had that tribal, narrow uh, focus to it. It's always had this broad vision of including every single tribe and language and people and nation in the world, but it's exclusive, right? Because it has at its heart, at its center, Jesus as Lord. Christianity brings those th two things together in remarkable 
fashion, why it continues to spread and move around the world today in different cultures and different languages and different people groups. It is by far the most diverse religion in the world, and the ability to spread and contextualize and grow is absolutely incredible. And we're still part of the same mission 2,000 years later. Certainly the disciples couldn't have imagined that we would be meeting this morning on a continent they didn't even know existed in a language not yet spoken here, talking about finishing Jesus' mission. We are so much further along, right? The gospel has spread from Jerusalem to the Greco-Roman world until it made it to Rome itself, till the Roman Empire was converted to Christianity. It spread to Africa, to the Americas, Australia, Asia, where it's growing today in massive, and now on its way back to the Middle East. And we have, in fact, even here this morning, somebody going, taking the gospel around the world back to where it started in the Middle East. Um, and we, we get to finish that work, right? The gospel will be preached to all, all nations. The only question is, will we be a part of what Jesus is doing in the world? Will we be a part of that mission? Now, not everybody can uh, go, uh, as Dustin and Carly are going to go uh, this week, but we can send those out for the sake of the name. We can support. We can be a part of this beautiful work. I, I didn't even plan having Dustin and Carly. It's just what a wonderful providence that God would uh, bring these two beautiful realities together on one Sunday. There are also, of course, wonderful opportunities to make the gospel known here in our city. Uh, the challenge for us here in Grand Rapids is that we're living in an increasingly post-Christian context. It's not that people have never heard the gospel, but they've heard various watered-down or distorted versions of it, have been hurt deeply by the church, and therefore have rejected the gospel, right? They're inoculated to the gospel, as I have often said. So the challenge for us today uh, is, is not only to make it believable intellectually, uh, but to show that it's good for the flourishing of our city and beautiful, right? The greatest expression of sacrificial love imaginable, right? We as a church have that beautiful privilege of showing and telling the goodness of the gospel. And once this gospel of the kingdom is preached to all nations, then the end Will come. We see this more explicitly in Matthew 24, 14, where Matthew says it exactly that way. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So the gospel going to the nations comes first, and then we get to look at the two final signs that signal the end of the story, uh, the great tribulation and return of Jesus. And I'm going to do these more shortly, or we're going to be here all day. <laughs> so the great, and this is where things get a little fuzzier, right? This is where things get a little more interesting here. Uh, we're going to look first at the great tribulation here. After the gospel's been preached to all nations, there is a significant but. Jesus says there will be a time of intense persecution and tribulation before the end. So let's read along here in verses 14 through 19. But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to stand, where he ought not to be. Let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now, and never will be. And so intense persecution is not particularly surprising 
to God's people. If you're familiar with the story of the Bible, right, they experienced in Egypt as slaves under Assyria when they came and conquered and resettled them, under Babylon when they were sent into exile, under Persia, uh, under the Greeks, and then finally under the Romans in Jesus' time. What's unique is this abomination that causes desolations mentioned by the prophet Daniel in Daniel 9, 27, Daniel eleven thirty one, 31, and 12, 11. Now, many saw fulfillment of this prophecy that Daniel made in the desecration of the temple by the Syrian general Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC. He built an altar to Zeus and sacrificed a pig on it. And so this is a very like dark period in Jewish history, sparked a massive revolt. And so bear with me a little bit on the history here because it's, it's interesting. Some of you are, I'm sure, fascinated. As of you, where's he going with this here? This is going to get interesting, right? So, so first, abomination of desolations, right? Uh, many look to that event, Antiochus Epiphanes, sacrificing a pig in the temple. If you know pigs and temple and Jewish kosher, th- those things don't go together, right? Later, when the Roman general Titus desecrated and destroyed the temple in 70 AD, this was also taken as yet another striking fulfillment of both Daniel and Jesus' words, right? The Romans marched in to the temple, you know, into the temple courts, right into the Holy of Holies, right? These pagans, you know, after they'd killed and slaughtered everyone in Jerusalem, crucified thousands of people outside the walls, uh, after incredible death and famine and destruction, you know, the Romans marched in and looked around and then just destroyed absolutely everything. And of course, you know, that connects very directly with Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple coming, 70 AD. And yet, Many believe that as terrible as these events were, they still rise to the level of verse 19, you know, the worst suffering ever happening in the history of the world, and that there will be an even greater season of persecution with an even greater desecration of yet another temple before the end. Um, great question, great speculation. If you read lots of commentators, you'll see lots of wonderful opinions running the full spectrum of those three different historical explanations. So what's the point? Who cares about all of this persecution and tribulation? Persecution is something Jesus promised, right? It's an important factor in the spread of the gospel throughout the book of Acts, and it would have been familiar to Mark's original audience, and it's an important part of the spread of the gospel throughout church history. Tertullian famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, a sobering witness and testimony, but something that Mark's readers would have seen, especially if they had lived through Nero's persecution, where Nero was burning Romans as torches in his gardens. They would have needed encouragement that tribulation is to be expected. It's a part of what it means to follow Jesus along the way. And if 14 and 23 are future, then we could expect more of the same in the future. So persecution should not be a particular surprise to us, right? You know, there is a whole strand of teaching, the prosperity gospel. It says, if you're Christian, you'll be healthy, wealthy, wise. Everything will be great for you. You won't ever get sick. You won't have any problems. And, all, and it just seems to fly in the face of everything. We read in the story of Scripture that being a Christian is difficult. It's challenging. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be pain. Yet we can take heart that Jesus will face the greatest tribulation of all. He will face the wrath of God on the cross. Right? He will die in agonizing and excruciating death at the hands of the Jewish religious establishment and at the hands of the Romans so that any tribulation we face, any persecution we face, any suffering we face, none of that can ever separate us from the love of God, as Paul says so eloquently at the end 
of Romans 8. So, so tribulation shouldn't surprise us. Uh, Jesus has died for our sins in our place, so no tribulation ultimately uh, can harm us in the long run. Ultimately, we are secure in the love of God, and we have an opportunity to be resilient in the face of suffering and persecution and uh, not just wilt and wither under it. God's Spirit is working and moving to take even persecution to strengthen our faith, give us resolve, put steel in our spine to see the gospel continue its advance around the world. Finally, after this great tribulation, we come to the final sign of the end. Jesus himself will return unmistakably in great power and glory to establish his forever kingdom. This is what Jesus' disciples and many in the first century were anticipating Jesus to do at his first coming, right? They were expecting Jesus to reveal his power, his glory, to gather his people and establish his communion his kingdom, their imagination was fired by passages like Daniel 7, 13 through 14, which we see referenced here, this, this son of man coming in his glory. I saw it in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so you look at that text, this is what Jesus' readers were thinking. Jesus is going to come, destroy all opposition, and set up his kingdom in Jerusalem, and all the other kingdoms will serve us. Uh, little did he, they understand that Jesus intended uh, not to crush all opposition from all other nations, but to win the hearts of people from every tribe and language and people and nation through his death on the cross, through his sacrifice. He would not just destroy the nations, but would win their hearts, bring them to Christ and add them to his kingdom so that people from every tribe and language and people and nation could declare his glory, right? Jesus will return and he will be riding on the clouds like God himself but his vision is far bigger than the disciples and Jesus' contemporaries had. So when Jesus finally does return, it's not only going to be for Israel, but for his people gathered from all the nations of the earth. Notice what Jesus says right in verse 27. Uh, it's very interesting. And then he will send out the angels, gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Right? The, the great company that Jesus will call to be a part of his kingdom will be coming from every nation and language on Earth. That is the beauty of what he has come to do. And we know the end of the story. We could take great comfort in it. Jesus will return in great power and glory to make everything new, to wipe every tear from our eyes, uh, to make every sad thing uh, come untrue, as uh, Tolkien has so beautifully uh, said it. But that hope also shapes the way we live now, right? That hope is not simply wish fulfillment, something, wouldn't it be nice if there were a fairy tale happy ending to our lives. No, that hope shapes the way we engage with the world today. Let me give you an example from uh, Craig Bartholomew and Michael Goheen in their wonderful book, The True Story of the Whole World. They say this, and I'm going to kind of be landing the plane here. Hope is a vital part of the Christian faith that must shape our mission today. Hope is a settled conviction about the future, a conviction that gives meaning and shape to life in the present. We can see this in many everyday situations. If, for example, you enter a university in the hope 
of one day becoming a doctor, and that hope will shape your life, directing not only your choice of courses, but also dictating the time and effort and money you will devote to your studies. Thus, the whole of your life will take on a new look, a new focus, because of your hope for what the future will bring. The same pattern is evident, but on a much larger scale, where our ultimate hope of the revelation of God's kingdom is concerned. What you and I believe about to be the goal of history will give particular significance and form to our lives today if we recognize that we've been called to provide our world with a preview of God's coming kingdom. The hope of that kingdom's coming will shape all that we say and do here and now. And so I hope that gives you some concrete handles to look at Jesus' return, how that begins to shape the way we live our lives now to give people a preview, a taste, a glimpse of Jesus' coming kingdom that they'd see in our love for each other and our generosity and the grace that we extend to one another, or just a taste, just a glimpse of that great banquet that is coming. So what would it look like to be a part of this unfolding story in our time? What would it look like to be uh, resilient in the midst of suffering? What would it look like uh, for this hope to shape our lives today? Jesus offers two points of application in verses 28 through 37. I want to run through them really quickly. I know time is slipping away. First, Jesus wants us to know what season we're in. So in verse 28, he says, uh, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender, and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus wants us to know what season we're in, right? And Jesus used a fig tree to illustrate this principle. Just like when the leaves come out in a fig tree, you can know summer is near. So when the gospel is preached to all nations... Uh, once we've walked through this great tribulation, we know that Jesus' return is, in fact, imminent. While we don't have any specifics, uh, we do have enough clarity to know the season we're in and the season in which the gospel is spreading to the nations. And we're closer than ever to finishing that mission. Second, in verse 32 through 37, Jesus says, No one knows the day or the hour. Uh, Susie read this text in our scripture reading, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And it's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So we know the we don't know we know the season broadly, but we don't know any of the specifics, right? We can't give a time or date or hour. This should keep us from speculating, but shouldn't keep us from gospel urgency, right? We see twice, be on your guard in this text. We see three times the call to stay awake. Jesus knew that his generations came and went, and as this massive work of bringing to the gospel to the nations, it'd be easy for Christians to get sleepy, to get comfortable, to get complacent with the work that he had for them to do. So he concludes by uh, repeating this exhortation to stay awake. And so I get to pass that on to you, and I get to take that to heart myself, the urgency that we have, and being where we're at in that mission. The gospel has gone to almost every nation on earth, right? We're, we're in the final stages of 
this incredible work of the gospel going to all nations, to getting to every tribe and language and people and nation on earth. And if you're anything like me as an athlete, right, if you see the prize, you see the end, you see the finish line, right, if you see we're in the fourth quarter, we're in overtime, the, the urgency that comes with that, the opportunity we have to be a part of finishing this great work that Jesus gave to us this morning. And so I, my prayer, my heart desire is that we would have just a fresh urgency, that we'd be stirred up, we'd be awakened to our role in this beautiful work that Jesus has for us. I think these uh, end times texts, right, and sometimes just lead to lots of abstractions and speculations. But I think what Jesus is trying to do, he's trying to light a fire here, bring urgency to his disciples with what is a massive mission, what is a massive opportunity to take the gospel to the nations. Pray that we would have that heart, that vision, that passion here, and uh, thankful that we can even get to hear uh, from somebody heading out in that direction and have a thousand ways to think about what that looks like here in our own context. So let's pray this morning that God would be doing that here. Uh, Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this vision of the gospel going to all nations because we are one of those nations the gospel has stretched to in these many years, right? We were just on the periphery, many of us, uh, pagans living just on the borders of the Roman Empire at this period in our ethnicity and our great, 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 great grandparents. And yet the gospel has come, radically reshaped the history uh, of this country, uh, the countries that many of us have come for as immigrants, and radically reshaped the entire world. And so I pray this morning um, that we would just continue that work, that we'd have a fresh urgency to be a part of the beautiful thing Jesus is doing in the world. Would you fill us with your spirit for all you're going to call us to do and be in this season? And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.